Thanks for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. I'm Pastor Steve, and this week we will be studying through 1 Kings chapter 6. Uh, I wonder, what is the most impressive building you've ever been in? I mean, maybe it's one of our local gyms like Stan Hewitt Hall or the, the Seberlin Mansion or Simon Stone Perkins Mansion in Akron. Or maybe you've been able to drive over to Pennsylvania and see Falling Water or, or the Biltmore Estate down in North Carolina or maybe even the White House or Washington National Cathedral in D.C. I don't know, some of you might have even been over to Europe and seen some of the famous church buildings there. Well, this week we are taking a look at one of the most impressive temples of the ancient world, the one built by wise Solomon. We're going to explore 1 Kings chapter 6 under three headings. First, we'll look at temple construction in verses 1 to 10. Secondly, we will look at ornate production in verses 14 to 37. And thirdly, we will look at spiritual instruction in verses 11 to 13. So we begin then with temple construction some 3,000 years ago in verses 1 to 10. Uh, we're told that it's been... 480 years since the Israelites first came out of the land of Egypt. You see, the same God who saved them out of slavery 480 years ago was now settling them for worship in the promised land. It was the fourth year of Solomon's reign as king. It's the year 966 B.C. And within that year, it was the second month of Ziv, which would be like April or May. Us. So we've got the time, it's late April, early May of 966 B.C., about 3,000 years ago. And we've also got the dimensions of the temple, right? It's 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. And that's not huge. About 30 paces long by 10 paces wide. I, I walked it off in here, and it's pretty close to half of our church's worship space. If you raise the roof here just a little bit, you could basically fit two of Solomon's temples side by side in Parkside Green's auditorium. Not the whole temple complex, right, with the courtyard, etc., mind you, uh, but just the temple itself was 10 yards wide by 30 yards long. And on a football field, you could think it could have sat between the goal line and the 10-yard line. Uh, not even reaching, just but a little more than halfway from sideline to sideline in that stretch. Or uh, if you're a basketball person, the length of a college or pro basketball court, but just about three-fifths of the width of a big basketball court. So you've got the idea of the size. Much more important than the date and the dimensions given in verses 1 and 2 is the fact that this was the house of the Lord. It was the house that King Solomon had built for the Lord was the place that Yahweh, the one true living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, was to be worshipped. And then we're given details about the vestibule in front of the nave on the temple, uh, approximately 15 by 30 feet in size. We learn about some windows that are, are recessed frames. We, we learn about side chambers that are all around the outside of the temple. Maybe it's for storage. Maybe it's to buttress the building. Uh, we can't be sure. We're also told that they prepared the stone at the quarry 
so that axes and iron tools weren't needed on site for the temple construction. I'm sure that those near the construction appreciated how that kept the noise down. Then we have further details about the south side entrance for the lower story and then the stairs leading up to the middle story and the third story. You know, various beams and cedar planks formed the temple ceiling, and that's the basic design of the temple construction in verses 1 to 10. Thus far, the focus has really been on the exterior of the building, right, the, the dimensions, the architectural layout, but the focus of verses 14 to 37 is on the interior of the building as we move from the basics of temple construction to ornate production, ornate production on the inside. Now Solomon didn't use, you see, just any old wood on the temple walls on the inside. He used the famed cedar boards from Lebanon that he had negotiated, you remember, from Hiram, king of Tyre? And Solomon also covered the temple floor with cypress boards, right? That's great thinking, <laughs> Solomon. They're, they're durable, they're water resistant, they're rot resistant. Wise choice. Uh, no stone, we're told, was visible on the inside at all. Cedar lined the whole interior, and it was further decorated, the cedar, by being carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Uh, it added artistic, beautiful touches to the place on the inside. And, and then there was the inner sanctuary, or the most holy place, some, sometimes called the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect cube. It's 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, 30 feet high. And that would account then for exactly one-third of the total space of the temple. It's the most holy place is 900 of the 2,700 square feet of the temple. And, and that's when we start hearing also about all the gold on the inside of the temple. Right? Verse 20, Solomon overlaid the inner sanctuary with pure gold. Verse 21, Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. Right? Gold, gold, gold. And in case we missed it, verse 22, and he overlaid the whole house with gold. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Now, besides gold, we also hear a lot about cherubim, winged celestial creatures that, that first appear in the third chapter of Genesis, where they guard the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, you may recall. And then, the next book over, in Exodus, the Lord commanded Moses to make two gold-covered wooden cherubim for the top of the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, pictures of cherubim were also woven into the fabric of the curtains and the veil in the tabernacle back in the day, and here they are again. They're prominent in the inner sanctuary, likely signaling God's special presence in a meeting place with his people. Verses 23 to 29, in fact, tell us that Solomon commissioned the production of two very large cherubim made of olive wood and overlaid with gold. They were each 15 feet high. Picture that, 15 feet high going halfway up the ceiling. And each wing was seven and a half feet long, right? 15 feet from the, the tip of the right wing to the tip of the left wing. And then the two cherubim's wings touched in the middle 
so that they spanned the entire width of the 30-foot sanctuary. So it wasn't like what maybe some of us had in our houses, if you're of my generation growing up, wall-to-wall carpet. <laughs> in God's house, it was wall-to-wall cherubim, touching each edge of the wall. Engraved figures also of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers appeared on the inner rooms and the outer rooms of the temple. There was just lots and lots of ornate production. And that included even the doors, right? There, were, there would be no plain entrances. The doorposts themselves were five-sided, and the olive wood doors uh, were covered with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, all of which were overlaid with yet more gold. There were other doors also that were made of two folding leaves, and these folding doors also included many carved designs which were naturally overlaid with gold. <laughs> it took seven and a half years to build this temple fit for a king, really the king of kings, right? Ornate production. And lastly, smack in between the temple construction, verses 1 to 10, and the ornate production, verses 14 to 37, we read the following spiritual instruction in verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. I know you're all into this seven and a half year project of building the temple, Solomon, but concerning this house that you're building, I want to remind you of what's most important. Right? As the ESV Study Bible says, the temple itself, for all of its splendor, and it was splendorous, does not change anything about the nature of the divine human relationship. God is not as impressed with structures as he is with obedience. And the beauty of temples is never any guarantee that God will not leave them or bring judgment on them. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, I think captures the sense really well. He says this, about this temple that you're building, what's important is that you live the way I've set out for you and do what I tell you, following my instructions carefully and obediently. Then, I'll complete in you the promise I made to your father, David. I'll personally take up my residence among the Israelites, and I won't desert my people Israel. God's message here is clear. You must not just build, but obey. You must not just build the temple, but obey my commandments. If you walk in my statutes, rules, and commandments, then I will dwell among my people and not forsake them as I told your father David. As one commentator put it, great kings and great buildings can and will be replaced if disobedience becomes a way of life. On the other hand, eternal blessings will result from consistent obedience. So Solomon must not forget these things in the midst of all his busy success as things are clicking along. It's a clear word to Solomon from the Lord, but 
What about us? Is there a word of the Lord for us in 1 Kings 6? I think so. Now, unless you're an architect, contractor, carpenter, mason, something along those lines, you may have gotten lost a bit in all the facts about how the temple was built. So what are we ordinary Joes and Janes to make of the temple construction? Number one, I think we can see God's faithfulness to his people. It had been 480 years since the Lord delivered his people from slavery to the Egyptians. There have been many, many generations of wandering in the wilderness, we read about in Numbers, and then starting to take the land that we read about in Joshua, and continually falling into a cycle of sin and repentance and deliverers that we read about in Judges, and then moving their worship tabernacle over the years to different sites we see in First and Second Samuel. It goes from Gilgal to Shiloh to Nob to Gibeon. But now, the Lord who had granted them freedom from Egypt 480 years earlier was granting them peace, including a modestly sized but beautiful, lasting structure for their worship in Jerusalem. Now, it may have seemed super slow in coming, but God was showing his faithfulness. And God continues to show his faithfulness to his children today. Even if it's not on our perfect timetable, God is faithful. God is faithful. Number two, unless you're into art or precious metals, the ornate decorations of the temple may not really excite you. But surely you did notice in your study that Solomon has decorated the temple in an attractive way. Maybe even looked up a picture of the temple online or found one in your study Bible. So consider Davis's suggestion that the splendor of the temple is meant to reflect the splendor of Israel's God. That the temple's gold points to Yahweh's glory. It was a world in which kings built or refurbished lavish temples as appropriate tributes to their gods and goddesses. In such a world, why should Yahweh look like a discount store deity? <laughs> there is certainly an indulgence in use of resources that's sinful, especially when it's focused on me, but there's also an extravagance that is godly when it's focused on the Lord. Right? There's an indulgence that's sinful, but there's also an extravagance that is godly. And here we may think, I think at least, of the woman who poured ointment over Jesus' head. That was worth an entire year of wages, but it was a beautiful thing she did, anointing him for burial. A godly extravagance. And Solomon invests his best resources into building the Lord a temple, right? It it cost him. He had to pay dearly for the cedar and the cypress and covering nearly everything in gold. So I asked myself, do I give the best of my time, my money, and my energy in serving the Lord? Do I give the best of my time, money, and energy, all I am, in serving the Lord? Thirdly, this chapter is all about the temple. Right? While it's not huge, it is ornate. And it's going to stand for the better part of four centuries. And it's going to be, in fact, the only Solomonic structure 
that the Israelites are going to rebuild after they return from exile. But this chapter is also about more than the temple, much more. The Lord's spiritual instruction right there in the heart of the chapter to Solomon makes it clear that God's presence and blessing on the people are not dependent on Solomon's building, but rather on Solomon's obedience. As has been said, having a magnificent temple in Jerusalem is no guarantee that God will bless Israel. What matters above all is obedience to his covenant. So we conclude then with the words of Jesus from the 14th chapter of John that apply to us. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The more fully we love the Lord, the more fully we obey the Lord. The more fully we love the Lord, the more fully we obey the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we never cease to marvel at how your word for your people three millennia ago remains your word for your people today. You were faithful in delivering your people from Egypt. You were faithful in giving Solomon wisdom to build the temple 480 years later. And you are still faithful to us 3,000 years later in your perfect timing and ways. Help us, Lord, in our day to avoid indulgence that's sinful, but to engage in extravagance that is godly. We want to give the best of our time, money, and energy to serving you. So we ask you to protect us, Lord, from trusting in a church building or any structure. We want to place our full trust in you. And when we fail to trust you or obey you, Lord, we look to Jesus who always trusted and obeyed you. We thank you for his perfect, lifelong obedience and the way his righteousness is credited to us by grace through faith. We are forever grateful to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus. Amen.